Good morning. T. Henry Howard, the second chief of staff of the Salvation Army at the turn of the 20th century, made an incredible comment that I'd like to share with you today. He observed, we cannot measure spirituality by rules of philosophy or definitions of theology any more than by a carpenter's rule or a chemist's scale. It is with the heart man believes under righteousness. The character of a man's thoughts has much to do with success or failure in the spiritual life. And he becomes influenced by what he thinks. Absolutely, without a doubt, one of the most significant metrics of how you and I are doing in our lives spiritually reflects the health of our mind. The scripture gives com complete indication that our minds truly matter to God. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 helps us with this truth that our spirituality becomes gauged by, by our thoughts, by our mind. In Romans chapter 8 verse 5, our text for this morning, this is what we read. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according uh, to the Spirit, in accordance with the Spirit, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Consider those two words highlighted. Uh, the, the same Greek terminology gives us this idea of the mind or our thoughts. From the old Greek term phronusin, this idea of mind actually most literally represents that area we might say around the heart or lower, that place where we feel, that place that reflects compassion and passion, that visceral implication of our thoughts and our emotions becomes referenced in the idea of mind from this old word. So what we have here doesn't reflect something that would be considered intellectual or merely cognizant. But here what we have is the visceral affecting how we think and becoming action. The scripture is very clear that if we live according to our flesh, our minds, our true self, our natural disposition will follow the flesh. If we live according to the Spirit, meaning God's Holy Spirit within us, then our minds, our inclinations and thoughts will follow the influence of the Spirit. So I welcome you to the conclusion of our teaching series, The Mind Matters. This is our seventh and final time to, to be in the study of considering the teachings of Scripture as the importance of our minds become reflected on the pages of God's Word. God cares about our minds, and the verse from Romans 8 that we just focused upon helps us to realize that we stand in a significantly challenging place as followers of Jesus. Will our mind, not our inner intellect, but our true self, our natural uh, disposition, how we see life, will our minds be influenced by the flesh or by the spirit? So in this uh, concluding uh, teaching of the mind matters, I'd like to share with you three facts to remember. From Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. So fact number one, the spirit always opposes the flesh. Now listen to verse 5 of Romans chapter 8 once again. For those who live according to the flesh, they think about the things of the flesh. 
those who live according to the Spirit, they think about the things of the Spirit. Paul teaches this truth to the first century church timelessly for you and for me today, reminding us that our minds will be influenced either by the Spirit or by the flesh. Your thoughts, not just your intellect, but that real you. Remember the Greek term phronousin, which indicates your natural disposition, who you are, how you think. In fact, how you draw conclusions and, and what you say is true for you becomes referenced in this whole idea of the mind. So in verse 5, Paul has reminded us that our minds, our thought process, will be influenced either by God's spirit within us or by our flesh. The most obvious and significant observation from verse 5 would be there exists no third option. Either by the spirit or by the flesh, we become influenced. So the first fact we need to remember as we close out this this incredible study on the fact that the mind matters, the first reminder expresses that the spirit always opposes the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, the spirit becomes referenced 21 times and the flesh referenced 13 times. So here in Romans chapter 8, the contrast between the spirit and the flesh becomes very obvious. Uh, in, the, in the larger uh, context of Romans, Paul spent a great deal of time building context. The Holy Spirit gave him this tool of communication. Back in Romans chapter 5, Paul built the contrast between uh, Adam and Christ. In, in Romans chapter 6, Paul built the contrast between being a slave to sin or being free from sin. In the opening of chapter 8, the first four verses, Paul built the contrast between life and death. And here in verse 5 and following of Romans chapter 8, Paul has built the contrast of the flesh and the spirit. So if we are to truly understand how vulnerable our mind becomes to influence and how we need to be very careful as to what influences our thoughts, we need to first remember that the spirit always opposes the flesh. Now, in order to really embrace this, I'd like to share with you some considerations that will better help us to apply verse 5. The first consideration that we need to take as we look into verse 5 would simply be this. What is not being said? What is Paul not saying when he expressed this in verse 5? Hey, those who live according to the flesh act one way. Those who live according to the Spirit act another. Paul is not stating a normal juxtaposition that we simply live with. Let me explain. Paul is not saying that Christians have the flesh and the spirit juxtaposed, meaning they contrast, but they're existing simultaneously. And with every whim and impulse, we may follow one or the other. That's just simply the way it is. No, that's not what Paul is saying. But you know, many times I've heard well-intended Christians, maybe even well-intended Bible teachers, express that we will always have both of these options that characterize what we do. Paul would say, no, that's not the truth. That's, that's a false understanding of the contrast between spirit and flesh. They are always opposed. I know you've probably seen that very cute animation of the little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder, and both are trying to influence the individual. Well, well, that makes cute animation, but very poor theology. 
Because Paul does not say here that the flesh and the spirit are there and we will refer to either of them regarding our whims or our impulses. There may be times people would say, well, I just felt the whim of the flesh and so I acted out. Or I really felt like this was a great time for me to focus on Jesus in my life, so I just focused on him. Those are statements that really have no theological theological foundation. Because again, what we understand here concerning our mind is that we would either be influenced by the spirit or by the flesh. There is no simultaneous common uh, coexistence of, of, of simply having both characterizing our thoughts. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the apostle Paul wrote this. Uh, Paul wrote, if, if I walk by the Spirit, the word walk there can indicate live, if I walk by the Spirit, I will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So not only here, but in many of the places, Paul saw the, the Spirit's influence and the flesh's influence not as a common juxtaposition where they're contrasting, but they're existing in some playful parallel in our lives. No, Paul taught under the anointing of God's hand that these are antithetical. They cannot agree. They can't exist simultaneously. We are either uh, giving to one at the at the dismissal of the other or vice versa. We are either following the spirit, which influences our mind, or we're following, we're following the flesh. So Paul introduces, or I would say reintroduces this contrast of spirit and flesh with, with emphasizing for the first church and for us the importance of where our mind falls in this opposition. Are we are we giving in to the spirit? Are we giving in to the flesh? Now, certainly the scripture teaches that there will be this battle, but that's just it. The scripture refers to the opposition of spirit and flesh as a war, as a battle, not as this common um, coexisting influence that we just simply have to put up with, where at any moment with any whim, we could go in either direction. No, Paul reminds us here that we are either giving attention to the flesh with our minds, and thus that becomes the condition of our mind, or we are giving attention to the spirit, we're following the spirit, and that thus conditions our mind. So what is not being said is that there is a coexisting of influence that's normal, and we should simply tolerate that. That's not what Paul is saying. Now, there's a second consideration that will help us with verse 5. Obviously, we now turn to what is being said. Now, when I read verse 5 with verse 6, we now understand what Paul, under God's hand, actually says to us here. So again, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, they dwell, they think on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, they think, they use their phronusin, remember that word? They use their their whole means of drawing conclusions and labeling truth. They They have that influence either by the flesh or by the spirit, but listen to verse six. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. So in verse five, the mind becomes reference, but in verse six, it's as if the emphasis turns not just to the mind or thoughts, but to the mindset, the actual uh, practice of our thoughts. So what Paul is saying would be that the spirit and the flesh actually represents two natures. The spirit and the flesh actually represents not just two separate natures, of course, but two separate uh, rules, 
two separate uh, governing influences over our life. The language of verse 5 and verse 6 indicates an, a rule that, that controls, that, that becomes absolute. So there exists no way that the spirit and the flesh can influence my mind at the same time. Paul would say, no, they're in opposition. So what Paul is saying is you are either giving to the influence of the spirit or you're giving to the influence of the flesh. Either God's Holy Spirit in you is, is directing your minds, period, or your flesh is directing your minds. They are in opposition. So that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, a third consideration that will help us to, to really embrace verse 5 would be to consider what the context supports. We, we know what Paul was not saying. We know what he is saying. But now let's look at the, the context of Romans to, to see support to this first reminder that the spirit and the flesh are always in opposition. Now, there are many uh, places in Romans where we could find support for this teaching, but we move simply back one chapter to, to chapter 7. Now, so that we might understand more significantly that Paul does not speak about a friendly uh, negative and positive influence sitting on our shoulders where we fall to either by a whim. Paul looks at something much more deeply and much more significant about the opposition between the spirit and the flesh. And uh, chapter 7 serves as a great commentary for chapter 8. So I'd like to read just a few verses from Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 23. This becomes Paul's personal testimony. Uh, Paul, Paul said this, but I see a different law in the parts of my body. Here's the phrase, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Listen to verse 24, Paul stated, what a wretched man am I? And then he continues, who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25 of Romans 7, but I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then with my mind, I, I'm, I myself, I'm a slave to the law of God, but in my flesh, a law, a slave to the law of sin. The significance of Paul's testimony here rests upon that, that very picturesque expression, waging war. Paul said, my mind, I desire that my mind would follow God's law, follow God's directives, but, but in my body, in, in my soul, in my, in my fallenness, there is something waging war against that spirit. It's, it's my, it's my flesh. And then Paul states something in verse 24 that really gives uh, strong evidence to this opposition between spirit and the flesh. Paul said in verse 24, what a wretched man am I? Paul did not say, well, at least my intentions are good, even though I'm giving into the flesh. At least I intend to think on good things. That's not what Paul said. Paul didn't say, well, even though I allow the flesh to create thoughts in my mind that aren't acceptable to God, at least I'm still reading the Bible. At least I'm, I continue to, to attend church. At least I'm still listening to good Christian music. No, that's not what Paul said. When Paul recognized the opposition, Paul said, what a wretched man I am that I could be pulled by God's spirit in me in one direction, but then I could be pulled by the flesh in another. Paul said, what a wretched man am I that my mind could be held captive by the flesh or my mind could be held in obedience to God's influence on my life. But Paul said, there is a war waging in me. And Paul said, what a wretched man 
I am. The word wretched there is, is an interesting term. It actually can be defined as a critical experience that is beyond man's resolve. So this cry of dereliction from Paul references a cry of helplessness. Perhaps you've been there before where you just feel there is no positive influence over your mind, where your thoughts are, are being pulled by every wind of doctrine and every whim of impulse in our world. And, and maybe there are many today who feel like they have absolutely no discipline over their, over their thoughts, even good Christians. And Paul would say, how wretched we are that there's this opposition. But then Paul did not leave the last statement to be this cry of dereliction. What a wretched man I am. Who can resolve this? No, Paul actually made that statement not as a final cry of helplessness, but as a prelude to grace. Because after that statement, Paul said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul said, Jesus becomes my answer to this opposition. Paul said clearly the answer to the opposition between spirit and the flesh is not a what, but a who. The, the, the answer to this opposition is not a what, meaning I'll simply attempt to do better with good intentions. No, the answer is who? Jesus Christ, who through the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. And we have his influence here. But all that flesh can also influence. And Paul made it very clear in verse 5 and 6, hey, these two influences are in opposition. And it seems as if Paul is laying the, laying the responsibility on the individual, does it not? Because Paul said, hey, he or she who gives way to the flesh, that's where their mind will be. He or she who gives way to the spirit, he or she who follows the influence of the spirit, that's where their mind will be. So we, we see this stark reality that takes us to our second reminder that the mind is never neutral. The first reminder, well, there's an opposition between the spirit and the flesh. That opposition is there. It's not a common, convenient parallel in our lives, but, but an antithetical waging of war. But then Paul turns more deeply in verse 6 to this idea of of the mind set. And Paul said, for the mind set, the, the mind that actually has taken its means of drawing conclusions and defining truth from the flesh, well, that mindset ends in death. The mindset of the spirit, you see this in verse six, ends in life and peace. Well, that's, that's a powerful statement. And for just a moment, consider again that the emphasis lies upon this, this ex extreme difference either between the influence of the flesh or the influence of the spirit. The mind is never neutral. At this moment, at this very moment, your mind is either giving to the things of the flesh which lead to death, meaning a spiritual death, a separation from the Lord, or your mind is giving to things that lead to life and peace, meaning the life, the resurrection life of Christ, for here in this text, the idea of life points to the new life that Jesus brought through the empty tomb and the peace that reconciles us to God through the work of Christ. So this unique peace comes from the life and the result of our mind being controlled by the Spirit 
It's life and peace. It's as if Paul here in verse 6 actually describes someone who doesn't know Jesus and someone who does know Jesus, someone who chooses to follow the flesh and someone who chooses to follow the Spirit. So with those two influences before us, we have to understand the mind is never neutral. So consider this um, this, this parallel, if you will, from the scripture, but, but more than that, consider this opposition, the, the flesh and the spirit. Now, for just a moment, let's, let's define each of, these, each of these so that you can understand why the mind is never neutral. You may say, well, I, I belong to, to Jesus, so I'm following his presence in my life. I would never give in to the flesh. Well, Paul exhorts even good Christians, hey, don't, don't follow this direction because this is who you are. So obviously, Paul intends that there be a, a stark contrast drawn here to remind us that our, our mind is going to fall one or the other. So the mind is never neutral. So let's define first the flesh. The flesh as represented here in verse 5 and 6, because the result would be death if the mind is built upon the flesh, the, the definition here of flesh doesn't simply mean our ability to make our own decisions or have our own thoughts. The indication actually expresses the tendency that the fallen man has to rebel against God. All throughout the scriptures, especially in, in, in the New Testament, we, we read again and again of how our sin becomes enmity against God, how we ourselves, before Jesus saved us, we were enemies to God. So the flesh here in this text references the tendency to rebel against God. The spirit references not simply our, our intention to be good people or to do spiritual things, but the spirit here reflects the presence of Christ and salvation in the life of a believer. In, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, we are told of the difference between the, the spirit and the flesh. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, we are told the difference between the body, the soul, and the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we are told the difference between the soul and the spirit. So we, we see our flesh, our body, our, our sarcasm, the scripture would say. We see the outer man, our, our flesh. But then the scripture describes the soul, which references our mind, our emotions, and our will. But then the scripture also defines our spirit, that place wherein the Holy Spirit takes up residence, where we have been changed by, by Jesus himself. And so here the spirit references the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit in us and salvation in the life of the believer that becomes a very real uh, identifier of who we now are, that we have uh, given our life to Christ. So the flesh, our tendency to rebel against God. The Spirit, the very presence of Christ in us, wherein His salvation for us becomes manifested uh, through the Holy Spirit. Paul's emphasis in verse 6 would be, you're either, regardless of where you see yourself as a follower of Jesus, your thoughts are either going to the flesh, which references the tendency to rebel against God, or your thoughts are being influenced by the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in you. There exists no neutral. But I do understand that many people have a false sense of neutral. I've seen this. In fact, many, many years ago, I probably practiced this. A false sense of neutral would be, well, I'm not 
necessarily a spiritual person. I'm not one to be overly religious, but I'm certainly not going to be an enemy to God. So I am more in balance between the two. I have actually heard people express this in their own words. Any sense of neutrality becomes a false sense, a, a myth, if you will. The, the, the myth of neutrality wrecks a lot of lives. Because there are many who say, well, I, I do not want to really follow the whims of the flesh in my mind, but I'm really not that spiritual of a person, so I'm going to try to stay somewhere in the, in the middle. There becomes great danger and destruction if we fall into this false sense of neutrality. So let me share with you four responses, four consequences when someone tries to live here in this um, place of neutrality that actually doesn't exist. The first consequence is when you, when you think that you are above the flesh, influencing your thoughts, but you're not giving your thoughts completely over to Christ, and you think, hey, this, this is a safe place for me, that sense of false neutrality creates an ease in your thoughts being attacked. When you strive and, and, and uh, assume there's this place of neutrality, your mind becomes easily attacked by the enemy. Saying that, hey, I'm going to just dwell here in this middle place makes your mind very easy for the enemy to come in and attack and to fill your mind with, with things that, that are not of God that you may not even recognize or catch. So the first consequence of this false sense of being neutral would be an ease in your thoughts being attacked by the enemy. A second consequence then becomes an undisciplined mind. When we think that we can stay between these two, uh, our minds become undisciplined, meaning all types of thoughts can come and go. And we may not even recognize, sadly, there are many Christians who may not even feel conviction because they so have believed that they're, they're not enemies to God. They may not be totally given over to the control of, of, of the Holy Spirit in their thoughts, but they're here somewhere that really doesn't exist. And their minds become undisciplined. A third consequence is a loss of judgment. This becomes very dangerous because those thoughts come in that will eventually become action, activity. And the loss of judgment would be the loss of discernment. Do we really know which thoughts come from the enemy and which thoughts come from the Holy Spirit? There is no third place from where your thoughts come. So can we truly say we have keen discernment on every thought and know where they come from. And when they come from here, we repent. And when they come from there, we obey. Can we say this? Well, the person who attempts to stay neutral develops that loss of judgment. And then finally, the first three result in the last, a vacillating Christian. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost your status as a Christian because when Jesus has you, no one can take you from his hands. But oh, the destruction of a vacillating Christian, a Christian who follows the the flesh while thinking he or she may be following the spirit or at least making good decisions. That becomes a very destructive place for anyone to, to live. And so Paul gave us verse six to say, Hey, the mindset on the flesh is dead. You, you, you may be following Jesus, but if your thoughts come from here, there'll be destruction if you're not careful. Or the mind is set on the spirit, meaning your desire to obey him and, and your thoughts are focused on what he desires for you, when we when we fight to stay in the middle, uh, we we see these consequences that can be very dangerous and very very destructive uh, in our lives. 
Um, in, in the United States, there is a physical disorder we know as sleep apnea. The Sleep Apnea Association estimates that 22 million of us suffer from this sleep disorder. And in simple terms, this is, disorder represents someone who, during their sleep, repeatedly stops breathing, stops taking in oxygen. And these become very dangerous symptoms of this disorder. Uh, two of the most common words in the New Testament for, for, uh, for the spirit uh, is translated air or, or spirit. And, and in comparison to sleep apnea and, and the physicality of, of individuals' lives, there exists, I believe, a spiritual sleep apnea where, where we at times forget to, to take in the, the air, the breath of the Holy Spirit. And there are times when, when we forget such verses like Ephesians 5.18. It's a, it's a present but passive imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. Open up your heart. Let the Holy Spirit guide you and lead you. But I'm fearful that, that there may be a spiritual sleep apnea where we have been lulled to sleep by some uh, sedation of this culture where we forget that our total dependence is upon the Spirit and upon His presence in our lives. So we're either depending upon the spirit or we're, we're falling into this spiritual sleep apnea and we're listening and following the flesh. Uh, this becomes a dangerous consequence when we dwell here. So Paul gives us a third reminder as we close out the teaching today from, uh, from the opposition between the spirit and the flesh to this fact that, that we, that we can't be neutral. The mind is never neutral. We, Come now to a third and final reminder. Your spiritual identity should determine the focus of your mind. Now, this becomes very simple, but again, expresses the message of verse 6. The mind set on the spirit seeks the things of the spirit. The mind of the flesh seeks after the things of the flesh. Uh, notice something about verse 7. We're going to move forward just a couple of verses to uh, to really apply this truth that your spiritual identity should determine the focus of your mind. Verse 7 reminds us that the mind of the flesh is always an enemy to God. Verse 8, if we continue reading down, reminds us that the mind of the flesh cannot please God. But look and listen at verse 9. Paul said in verse 7, hey, if you're following the flesh, well, then your thoughts are an enemy to God. If you're following the flesh, then your thoughts can't please God. But it's as if Paul pauses and puts his loving pastoral arms around the first church and brings them into the truth of verse 9. And Paul said this in verse 9, but you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit since the spirit of God lives in you. So Paul reminded the church of the first century with a solid truth that should be reminding you and I of our identity today. Your spiritual identity should be determining the focus of your thoughts, your inner disposition, your way of drawing conclusions and, and, and clinging to what you know is true. All of this should be influenced by the Spirit because your identity is a spirit spiritual identity. Not long ago, someone said, Pastor Ken, I'm just not a spiritual person. I think what they were trying to say is they're not a religious person, meaning they didn't really find a lot of peace in doing different uh, functions in, in, their, in their religious practice. Well, I certainly had questions about that comment, but when they said, I'm not a spiritual person, I said, 
Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're, you've been created in the image of God, and I pray that, that you're a spiritual person because the Holy Spirit, through your faith in Christ, has given you new life in your spirit. And if you know Jesus, your identity is now a spiritual identity. You've heard me say this before. We are not physical beings trying to live in the spirit because of our faith in Jesus. We are spiritual beings. We are, we are identified spiritually simply trying to live out our faith in, in the body. And so Paul emphasized this. Your, your spiritual identity should determine the focus of your mind. The Holy Spirit represents who you are in Christ. And although the mind of the flesh becomes enmity to God, the mind of the flesh can't please God, you're in the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in you. So if we were to move back to that opposition between Spirit and flesh, Paul would say, why are you even thinking that there is an option for the flesh to influence your thoughts? You have the Spirit of God in you. This is who you are. That should be influencing your thoughts, that which you know is true and that which you cling to that affects how you live out your life daily. So our spiritual identity, without a doubt, should determine the focus of our minds. There was an article in the USA Today paper uh, several years ago that analyzed a surge in, in the United States of a particular group labeled the spiritually apathetic. And this article really drew... Uh, my attention in. And the article, perhaps uh, common language for some of us, the article stated that there, there really aren't atheists, but there are those who just choose to ignore that which is spiritual. And whether you would agree with that statement or not, the article then unfolded some research, uh, some from Baylor University, some from Lifeway, that indicated how despondent our culture has become to things that are spiritual. Uh, one research, uh, particularly from Baylor University, revealed that 44% of Americans who responded to the survey said they spend no time thinking about eternal wisdom or eternal matters. 46% told Lifeway Research that they never really wonder if they're going to heaven or not. It's just not a thought to them. 28% told Lifeway that uh, the, the deeper meaning of life as it pertains to God is just not important personally. On and on again, these statistics piled up and, and the article really overwhelmed me because of how largely in our culture there seems to be a spiritual despondency. I'm not sure that's too dissimilar to the first century where although the church is growing and, and, and emerging, Paul understood there were many in the church who who were only linked to the church because of relationships or because of a desire to simply live out the law. There was no deep allegiance to Jesus Christ in many hearts. And so this is why Paul, uh, led by God, brought this truth very clearly to the church. Hey, you're either being influenced spiritually or you're in, being influenced fleshly, particularly in your mind and with your thoughts, Paul said. You're either being led spiritually or you're being led in the flesh. And so... Your spiritual identity, dear follower of Jesus, should determine the focus of your mind. And so I, I leave you with these uh, thoughts as we close out this teaching series. Someone may say, how can I truly keep my mind on the Spirit? Well, here are just some reminders from this entire teaching series. 
that will help you to keep your mind on the Spirit. First, remember to cast down arguments. 2 Corinthians 10 5, take those arguments down that would speak or influence you against your faith in Jesus. Cast down those arguments. Too many people tolerate truths that come into our lives that are contradictory to the truth of Christ. Paul would say, hey, cast those arguments down. Secondly, renew your mind according to the Word of God. Romans 12, 2 reminds us to have our mind renewed, particularly on the truth of God in Christ. Have your mind focused on the gospel truth, the truth of God in Christ that has changed our lives. Uh, also, let the mind of Christ dwell in you. I love that simple statement in Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in you which was also in Jesus. Allow the mind of Christ to be your mind, to guide your mind, and to guide your thoughts. And then finally, regularly establish your thoughts. Proverbs 16.3 reminds us, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Isn't that amazing? Commit your works, meaning commit your daily life to the Lord. Say, God, I, I'm living this day for you. My heart surrendered to you. And as you do that, the promise will be your thoughts are established upon him. So I hope that these uh, concluding thoughts have helped you. I hope these reminders have helped you to consider, again, how important it is that our, our mind truly matters. Hey, from this point forward, do not allow anything to influence your mind that you would allow to influence your actions. Uh, guard your mind, guard your heart, because from your heart, from your mind, comes the activity, comes the wellspring of life. So let's guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And let's see Jesus do some amazing things in and through us because we are surrendering our thoughts and our minds to him. Thanks for being a part of this teaching series. I'd love to pray with you. Father God, thank you for meeting us here and teaching us through your word. And Father, as we uh, move uh, into Thanksgiving and into the Advent season, of Christmas, Father, make our hearts so joyful and thankful for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And Father, for those that are here today, Lord, if there's anyone that needs to reach out, I pray, God, that we will be able to connect so that our faith is encouraged and our faith is strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. You know that website location is right here, forward slash more. If you need anything, if you want to talk about what it means to know Jesus, reach out to us. We're ready to be in touch with you. Hey, we're about to enter into a season of Thanksgiving and then Christmas celebration. I can't wait to enter into these days of celebration with you. Thanks for being here today. Love you a lot. See you soon. Bye-bye.